As we come to our study of 1 Peter, you will notice that we are in a new section. Open your Bibles to chapter 4, if you will. It's one central thought, and it's verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to do something that's, um, like I love, actually, we're going to do this. So earlier, I, we had Jesse read out of the ESV, verses 1 through 6. And in a moment here, I'm going to read from the NAS, uh, verses 1 through 6. And it's always good to have different translations in uh, looking at this. And so, if you could narrow this down to one doctrine, it would be the doctrine of sin. Harmardiology is the kind of the big uh, 25 cent word. It is perhaps the doctrine of sin, the most sobering doctrine of all doctrines. And the reason is because we hate everything it teaches. And that's because it's true. And I say that we hate it because it speaks to our own hearts. This one speaks to the heart of just who we truly are in reality. In other words, we hate that it's true when it says that we're sinners. So with that, let's put these six verses before us. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and then malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, will you notice that I've titled this section, How to Forget Evil? You say, oh, if only it was that that easy. That's exactly what I would like to do. You could also say, how to finally get away from sin and all its effects. I like John MacArthur's title when he says, he calls this a memory that shuns sin. Now in a moment, you'll see why all of these are appropriate titles to describe what Peter teaches us. Listen to how many godly men from the past have described just what sin is like. Because First Peter 4, this section kind of takes us deep into this thought, into describing what sin is like. We should start, of course, with C.H. Spurgeon. 
Sin is a thief. It will rob your soul of its life. It will rob God of his glory. Sin is a murderer. It stabbed our father Adam. It slew our purity. Sin is a traitor. It rebels against the king of heaven and earth. Against virgin, sin drives man mad. Against their reason, against their best interests, they follow after that which they know will destroy them. Still more, Spurgeon. Sin is no little thing. It girded the Redeemer's head with thorns and pierced his heart. Look upon all sin as that which crucified the Savior, and you will see it to be exceeding sinful. End quote. Thomas Watson, sin is the womb of our sorrows and the grave of our comfort. Sin makes a man worse than a toad or a serpent, Watson said. Sin not only makes us unlike God, but contrary to God, Watson said. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the tragedy of sin is that it affects man in his highest faculties. Sin causes us to become like fools and behave in an irrational manner. Thomas Boston said sin has turned the world from a paradise into a thicket. There is no getting through without being scratched like that. John Calvin said the wicked have the seeds of hell in their own hearts. And Matthew Henry puts it probably the simplest In three words, sin lessens men. End quote. Yeah. Sin makes a man less. Sin is a tyrant, sin is a monster. Sin is timeless as far as we know. That is, it had its beginning, but it seems to never end. Sin plays no favorites. Sin cares not for money. It's not really about money for sin. Because it can make you crave it whether you have money or not. Sin cares not for fame. You cannot bribe it. The Bible says sin is a monarch that seeks to reign. Sin lives outside the law. Sin drives rebellion. Sin needs no daylight To live. It can live just in thoughts. Sin is destructive. It is corruptive. It is pervasive. It is both rude and courteous. It is both external and internal. 
as Christians, we have been set free from sin. That's Romans 6, right? Freed from sin. That's uh, Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. That's 1 John 5.18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, and by that he means practices sin. A person who is born has his compass pointed away from sin. 1 John 5.18. But he who is born of God, talking about Jesus, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So the person who is a Christian, the person who is in Christ, has a different kind of relationship to sin. All of that is true, and yet so is Romans 7. And every single Christian can relate with Paul when he says, Wretched man that I am, you look inside, you look at your actions, and you say, Wretched man that I am. And like Paul, you say, Who will set me free from the body of this death? In other words, you long for final redemption. You long for the day when sin is no longer a thing for you. So how do you do it? I mean, how do you get away from sin and all its evil? How do you, as MacArthur said, shun it? I mean, even though at the positional level all Christians are saved from sin, like Paul Romans 7.14, every true believer feels like he is sold into bondage to sin. So how can we get to a place where we get away from it, where we avoid it? You say, why even talk like this? I mean, is this even a real thing to talk like this? Take a look at First Peter 1, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 again. He says, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Right? Someone has ceased from sin. Who? (laughs) He said, I don't know that person. What kind of suffering is Peter talking about? I mean, is he saying that we can go through some sort of suffering that can burn off our sins, purge those sins away? I don't believe he's talking about that. Maybe he's saying that we can get to a place where we no longer sin anymore. Are you ready for this? I think that second one is actually more the right answer. But not like you might think, be thinking. Not a burning off, but a kind of suffering where sin is done. Wouldn't that be nice? Say, oh, yes. So tired of the sin thing? Where it has ceased. Now I'm going to have to explain that And I will, actually most of our sermon this morning is going to be given to that. There are different ways that we can look at our relationship with sin. We can look at it like a future thing. You know, sin in the future. 
when will it happen? And there are lots of warnings in the Bible about what sin could do to you, right? And so there's a future side to handling sin. We could talk about that. And you should do that. We should do that with ourselves. We should do that with our children. We should, there should always be warning labels. Be on the alert, be on the guard, the Bible talks about. Watch and pray, Jesus said, right? We can look at it in the present, First Thessalonians 5.21, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. And so you deal with the present form of evil in all its forms. But we can look at it in a past sort of way too. Listen through a memory of certain things. So what do you mean by that? Peter here tells us one of the best ways to deal with sin is through your memory. Remembering things in the past. Remembering crucial things that will help you fight sin and battle temptation that will act as motivation for putting on the armor of God to battle sin against sin spiritually. So we're talking about ceasing from sin, turning away from it, shunning it. Now to get all of what I just said, I think the best thing that we could do is work ourselves out from the context, okay? That's what we're going to do. We've got to go backward in our study. So when we say context, that's what we mean. It's going backward in our study. Now, let's, let's remind ourselves about the theme. Remember the theme here of chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, victory in Jesus. What do we mean by that? Well, Jesus had victory in his suffering. And we showed you that there in that section. That he had victory in his suffering. And in, in particular, we showed you that from the cross grave, and then finally his ascension. And so we we had a massive lesson that we learned from his suffering that way. Now suffering as a Christian for obeying God is actually the theme in 1 Peter, isn't it? Suffering for obeying God. Suffering for doing what is right. Suffering for following Christ. Having victory in that suffering was the theme in our last section. So how can Jesus show us the way when it comes to suffering and having victory? By having victory in the greatest suffering. And that's just what he did. You remember back in chapter 2, suffering unjustly, suffering when you live righteously. Where was that demonstrated the most? The cross, right? And so Peter took us through four checkpoints in that suffering, and each one was a massive statement of victory all along the way. On the cross, he bore our sins and brought us to God, and there was victory in that. Next, his spirit was made alive, and he proclaimed victory to the demons locked up in a prison because he tried 
because you know those demons tried to make the world unredeemable. He said, I don't fully understand that last thing you just said. Go back and listen to the messages. That'll be helpful for you. The next checkpoint, the resurrection, where he accomplished salvation for all who by faith come to him like entering Noah's Ark to be saved from God's judgment against evil. And we looked at that last week. And we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ is our grace boat, our death box, in facing God's wrath. And, and, and in that box, we're protected in him, just like they were protected. And then last checkpoint, the ascension, where Jesus went back to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? Exaltation. And so more victory in his suffering. Why? Why? tell us all of that and make a point of all of that so that we might have victory in all of our suffering. That's the idea. Now, why does Peter need to be telling us this? Well, look at verse 1. We're going to look at verse 1 of our study. And the reason why I actually took you through all of that is because of the very first word. What's the very first word? Therefore. On the basis of everything I just said, notice the next thing. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh. Will you notice that Peter says it the same way back in 3.18? In fact, twice he says it. For Christ also, for some of your versions it says, suffered for sins. And that's a very appropriate word because the word is as, as Pascal, which we get the word Paschal, the suffering lamb. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. Having been put to death in the flesh. And so he suffered in the flesh. Having been put to death in the flesh, suffered in the flesh, same as being put to death in the flesh. And so it was a kind of suffering that ended in death, okay? Since Jesus died to show you that you can have victory in your suffering, notice the next phrase, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. What purpose and whose purpose? Notice the word same. Now, from that, I take that our purpose then is like Jesus' purpose, right? Same. Our purpose is the same as Jesus' purpose in suffering in the flesh. What is that purpose? Victory in his suffering. Spiritual victory and suffering. We are to arm ourselves with the same purpose that Jesus had in his victorious sufferings. So let's put it all together. Christ suffered in his, in, in, in his flesh. Same thing as saying Christ has died. Since Jesus Christ died, 
Arm yourselves with the same purpose. Since Jesus had incredible victory at his death, you do the same in your what? Death. Arm yourself with it. Now, when I say that, we also have to talk about the word arm. It's a, it's a military word. Put on your weapons to fight. That's what the, this word actually means. And in fact, actually, it's used in Ephesians 6.11. You remember that? The armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Same word, middle case. Do this yourself. It's okay. All right. Put on that armor. What is the armor? Does Peter tell us what the armor is? He does. Arm yourself with what? The same purpose. The same enoia. E-N-N-O-I-A. In the Greek, it is translated purpose, but the word actually means the mind or even the memory. It means thought or principle of thought or counsel or the mind or resolve. Arm yourself with a certain kind of thought, a principle of thought. Arm yourself with some memory of something. Now watch this. You'll notice that I titled this How to Forget Evil. I'm going to really try to put these pieces together because at first, see, wait a minute. He's saying have a memory. You're saying forget something. That's the opposite, right? Follow. How do you forget evil? By replacing it with a greater thought, a memory of certain things. A memory of what? Well, what's it say here? The same thought as Jesus. So, oh man, if only I could know, if only I could know what his thought was. Hey, we have it. It's in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. There's his thought. Same thought as Jesus. Those are the two connectors here. Us believers and Jesus. And what he is saying is we battle sin the same way Jesus battled sin. Because you'll notice it says has ceased from sin. That's where we're going. We battle sin the same way Jesus battled sin with a principle of thought. All right, we're getting closer. I realize I had to really set the, I've got to serve the table. You're not going to be ready to eat this meal until I serve the table. You got to, you got to see it. Because when I do, then I'm, then I'm going to give you five points that will really just help you. And I'm actually only going to give you two because that's all we have time for. It's just two. All right? Sorry. Just one verse this morning. One verse, two points, three more, another time. All right. What is that principle of thought? Well, what happened to Jesus in his suffering? He died. He faced sin in temptation every day 
And then he bore that sin. And then he died. I believe then that the principle of thought is that in our suffering, we have to be willing to die. Remember, he's talking about suffering this whole letter. It's all about suffering. And so what he is saying is, the key way to handle suffering is in your mind to be willing to die. I ask you this, are you willing to die for following Christ? The reason why I ask that question is because that's at the heart of what Peter is saying. In other words, we are so committed to living like Christ to only suffer for doing what is right that we are willing to die in it. Some of us, I guess most of us probably are, are, are asking the question, Okay, can I just get this thing in little doses? Like maybe one of those little eye drop, you know, deal there where, you know, okay, a little suffering here, a little suffering there. Just, you know, instead of the big old fire hose that we feel like comes at us. But we're not even done with the principle. And I believe that's why the NAS translated it purpose. This principle of thought has a purpose. This purpose is that we be willing to die because in that death, there will be our greatest victory. Do you realize how powerful that is? to be able to stare persecution in the face and say, listen, my greatest victory will be death, so it doesn't matter what you do to me. Even if you kill me, I get to go be with Jesus. And that's what I believe Peter's teaching here. This is at the heart of what he wants them to know about suffering. This is spiritual maturity. To get to this place, your arrow, when it comes to spiritual maturity, is pointing up. That is how Jesus handled his greatest suffering, death. Because it meant the greatest victory. I face death... Jesus said, because in it is victory like no other. And so the point is no amount of suffering is a threat to you if you have this kind of thought, if you have this kind of memory. And I couldn't help but think of the mental approach that the martyrs had. They all had this approach they all had the approach of the one guy down near Venezuela who's 
threatened. Guy had a gun to his head. And he says to this Christian missionary, I could kill you. To which the Christian missionary said, Too late. I'm already dead. Sudden death. Sudden glory. You see, if you kill me, I just go to be with, I go where I really want to be, which was with my Lord Jesus. So, doesn't matter to me. You know, the guy couldn't pull the trigger. It's amazing. I mean, this this is a sobering passage because I look at this and go, oh boy, <laughs> I've got a ways to go to be like this. How about you? But isn't that, I mean, this is how Jesus looked at suffering. He, even if I die, there's great victory in that. And isn't that what Jesus actually taught his disciples? Matthew 10, 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Sudden death, sudden glory. So we're talking about being willing to die, suffering to the point of death. That was Paul's message all the time. I mean, we were just in First Corinthians 4 and flock. Remember this? I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. In chapter 15, I die daily. In Second Corinthians 6, and everything committing ourselves as servants of God as dying, yet behold, we live. Earlier in chapter 4, always carrying about, 2 Corinthians 4, in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So death works in us, but life in you. Always at the, at the door of death, Paul says. But that doesn't really matter. I mean, on and on it goes, and that's the same message, by the way, Peter is making here. Be willing to die following Christ. Philippians 1, I, I don't know which one I will choose. I mean, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul said that in Philippians one twenty one. He says, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, and I don't know how many people get to have that kind of choice. He says, I, 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 you don't understand. I just really want to go be with Jesus. Is that because he just, maybe he was in a lot of pain or whatever? No, it's because he really wanted to be with Jesus. That's it. And you see that attitude with Paul all the way to, to the very end, Second Timothy 4. All right, let's, let's put it together. What is Peter saying? This. Arm yourself with this weapon. What weapon? That no, that nobody can, 
Nobody can really take your life. I'm willing to die for following Jesus Christ. That right there is a weapon. In fact, it will be my greatest victory just as it was his. Now listen, beloved, that's the ultimate weapon, is it not? If that, if they threaten to take your life and your attitude is, this will be my greatest day, I mean, they, what pleasure are they going to find in that, right? It's a tremendous weapon. I mean, no wonder Peter uses the word arm yourselves. Look back at First Peter 4.1, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. All right. I hope you're putting these together this way. And I'm I'm taking a lot of time to do this because I think once you have the thought, boom. I mean, the the driving on the lanes are going to be pretty free and fast. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Do you see it? When you die, are you done? You're done with sin, right? You've ceased from it. Now, what is that saying? That death has a massive advantage when it comes to suffering for the Christian. Why? Because you don't sin anymore. That's why. And I'll tell you, for us as believers, sin is the worst thing, right? Romans 7, we hate it. John 3, we used to love it. Titus 3, now we hate it. Why? Because we love Jesus more. He's opened our eyes to that. So what are you arming yourself with? The thought and goal that ceasing from sin is closer than ever. You're willing to go through the suffering because it might mean you can go and be with Jesus and cease from sin and all its effects. That's the message. Some people look at this and say, and I, and I got to tell you, I read many of these this last week. But how can we say that Jesus ceased from sin? I mean, he never sinned, Right? Yeah, he did not sin. We're not talking about this about sinning. We're talking about the effects of sin, the impact from sin. Just as even for the believer, we're not talking about his sin. I mean, doesn't he say he's suffering unjustly because you for doing what is right? We're talking about the the impact of sin, not only on Jesus, but on everyone, really on us as believers. The reason we hate sinning is because of the effects of it. And so you think about this here. So Jesus was around sin, right? I mean, it it had effect on him. Romans 8, 3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. I mean, 
Jesus had to wear humanity in the likeness of sinful flesh. Second Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin on, on, on the cross for us. In other words, when Jesus died, he became free from sin. Not his own personal sin, but the sin that he bore. It was once for all, and that's a reason to have victory, to rejoice. For Jesus, all done with sin. Think about that. No more temptation. No more bearing our sin. No more effects of sin around him. I mean, he was hungry. He was tired. All of these things had an effect on him, and it was because of sin. I mean, he even wept, and I think even that is a statement of the effect that sin had around him, on him. And it's all gone now. And that's the thought I believe Peter wants us to arm ourselves with as we stare in the face of suffering. You can only kill me, pain and suffering, but you can't take away from me what comes next. The joy of ceasing from sin because I am with Jesus. And so Peter says, the only ones to cease from sin and the only way to cease from sin is by dying. Jesus is free. No wonder Hebrews 12, the cross was the joy set before him. He can finally be set free from sin. Not his own personal sin, but the effects of it all around him. And by the way, Paul was always thinking about being free from this body of death. Such a fixation. You'd almost think that the guy was morbid, Right? I'm telling you, I'll just give you a few. You know it to be true. You read it, you go, so he's talking about death. In his own words, Romans 7, verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. While on this earth... Romans 7.18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. It's just always sin. See? Verse 21, the principle of it. Verse 23 of Romans 7, and because I belong to Jesus now, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. I mean, this, this flesh has got to go, Paul says. And after salvation, the only place that sin can do anything is in the flesh. You see, I'd like to get free from it. When does that happen? Death. When you die. In Hebrews 2, it says that salvation, the Lord took the fear of, of death out of us. Remember that? You see, but I fear death still. Well, there are two possible reasons if you do. One, you don't know enough truth to understand that perfect love casts out fear. And you haven't, you haven't learned that. You haven't understood that. And so you need more teaching. And that's okay. Jesus removed 
that fear at salvation. And so if you belong to him, you need to know all that he has done for you in doing that. It's a wonderful truth. Or there's a second reason why you fear death. And it could be that you're not a Christian. And so that fear is telling you something. It's telling you that you need a savior. That's why we can say like Paul, dying and going to be with Jesus is better than living here on this earth. Come quickly. Maranatha, right? It's not morbid. That's understanding the truth if you're a Christian. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8 Though you have not seen him, you love him, you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory because you look forward to actually being with him. You can taste it. You want more. So now, like the martyrs in Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can thank your persecutors for sending you home where you can cease from sin and be with Jesus forever, right? As they're about to do it, you say thank you. Now, why am I armed with this kind of thinking? Look at verse 2 for just a moment. We're just going to peek around the corner, and then we're going to come back and uh, close our time. Why am I armed with this kind of thinking? Verse 2, so you can cease from sin on this earth every day. And as long as you live, it won't stop. But like Romans 7.25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, even though I'm a wretched man. I mean, so it sets my direction. Cease from sin now. Practice that now I, I live the rest of my life this way because it's where I'm going. It's the life I want right now. Now, what's that tell us the goal of the Christian life is? It is to be willing to die fighting sin, fighting the very desire of it at the less level. And that's also what I want you to see. Look at verses 2 through 6. He speaks of this at the less Level, no longer for the lusts of men, the desire of the Gentiles. He, he mentions lusts again in verse 3. He talks about the excesses in verse 4. Fight it because someday you will cease from it. And so the goal of the Christian life is in order to become like Christ, you and I must avoid sin. Forget to forget it. We want to get to that place where we can practice forgetting it. To deal with it at the memory level. Arm yourselves then with a certain kind of memory, there in your notes, a militant mindset ready to fight sin. Again, arm yourselves. you you, you got to get militant. We treat sin and lust like it's a problem all the time, like it's some sort of nuisance, like it's a nag, like it's a situation. 
Stop that. That's your problem. It's my problem too. Listen, sin is not just a nuisance or a nag or a situation. It's an enemy. Well equipped to kill you and to shame you on the way to doing that. So fight back. Five crucial layers to a militant mindset ready to fight sin. Let's look at point number one. Think of sin's ruthlessness. Think of sin's ruthlessness. Look back again at verse one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. How ruthless is sin? Notice what it did to Jesus Christ. He had to die because of it. He suffered in the flesh and we showed you that what that means. He died. If you want to sin, if you want to cease sinning in your life, you have to hate it. What makes you hate sin? Knowing what it's like. What is sin like? Ruthless. How do we know that? Because it made Jesus Christ die. You could say it this way. It killed him. It killed him. Now let's work through some of some things to understand the depth of this. One of the greatest changes that happens when a person becomes a Christian is he or she is turned from being an enemy to God to being a friend of God. C.H. Spurgeon absolutely loved talking about uh, our relationship with God that way. He wrote a book actually called The Friend of God. He loved talking about it that way. If you love God, then you love the one sent by him, right? Who's the one that is sent by God? Jesus Christ. So love for Christ is a mark of a person who's a Christian. Love for Christ. We're not talking about syrupy love. We're not talking about hallmark love. We're not talking about, you know, the the warm fuzzies. You know, sometimes you talk to people and they, they'll say, it'll, it'll go something like this. Yeah, I'm just not feeling it. I just think, what does that have to do with anything? Are you kidding me? I have no idea what you're talking about. You could, for all we know right now, everything could be solved with a, with some Tums or something. I don't know. You know, or Pepto. I don't know. I have no idea what to do when you say you're not feeling it. That is not love. By the way, no one naturally loves Christ. John 3.19, the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Who's the light? Jesus so Jesus tells us an unbeliever is some, someone who hates the light. That is somebody who hates 
Jesus because He is the light. Listen, the real Jesus, the Bible defined Jesus. Not the one that they tell you about, but they don't, they know very little of out there. By the way, that's also why salvation is just how John describes it in 1 John 4. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. When did he do that? Romans 5, at salvation, when the love of God was poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. So, you know, we didn't really have this love. The best kind of love we could give before as unbelievers, maybe to give Jesus a thumbs up. Sometimes people say, we're like this, we're buds. You say, well, can I share with you a few commands? That, you know, this has happened to me actually where I've talked to somebody, remember this on an airplane, uh, talking to this, this lady. I said, can I share with you a few commands of the Lord? And, uh, oh, whoa, 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 I don't believe that. So, well, but that's Jesus. He's the one that said, you must love him more than you love your own life and be willing to hate father, mother, yes, even your own flesh. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. And that you must be willing to obey my commands. I don't know about that. That's kind of strong language. Well, you've invented a different Jesus than the Bible has. If you love Christ, then you love the things that he loves and you hate the things that he hates. What does Jesus hate? Sin. So we hate sin. We hate darkness. We used to love it. He saved us, changed us, and now we hate it, all right? So what killed Jesus? Sin. Can we enjoy sin when we know what it did to Jesus? How ruthless is sin? It killed the one whom we love. John 15, Jesus said, you are my friends. I have called you my friends. What defines a friend of Jesus? He does what Jesus commands. So when you realize that Jesus was made sin, when you realize that Jesus never sinned, that Jesus was constantly obeying God the Father, that Jesus was innocent, blameless, pure, that when Jesus bore our sins, it separated him from the Father. When you realize what sin did to him, that should make you want to hate the thing that, that did that to the one that you love, right? Now let me see if I can illustrate this, and I really appreciate I'm not, I'm not going to share it in, in, in a, exactly the same way that John MacArthur did, but he kind of got me going in this direction. So as I was thinking about this, I thought, oh yeah, Exactly. So, when a parent sees his or her child get some disease or be born with some defect, it's hard. You hate what that thing has done to your child, don't you? Why? Because you love your child. And anything that has effect negatively on your child then becomes an enemy to you. You hate anything that is a threat to his 
or her health and happiness, right? Now, if someone does an injustice to your child or your wife, you hate it. If a person tried to do something bad to them and you were there, you might do whatever you needed to do to protect them within your strength and ability, right? So we sometimes, I think we, we fantasize way too much about things like that. I say, all right, you know, it's, it's why I have the golf club. It's right behind, I shouldn't be telling you, it's right behind the, you know, here's got the bookshelf, little golf club there. I got to make sure it's the right iron because, uh, you know, I'm going to come out swinging, you know, if that happens. What makes you do that? Love. You hate the enemy to the one that your soul loves. Now listen, sin took the life of Christ. He suffered in the flesh because of sin. And 1 Peter 3.18 says it took his life. It killed him. So what should our attitude be to sin? We should hate it, right? It's ruthless. How ruthless. It made people like Pilate say to Jesus, what is truth? I think to myself, are you kidding me? And then knowing Jesus was innocent to give him over to the hands of godless people to kill him. It made the the Romans whip him and press a crown of thorns into his skull and jam a spear into his side. Sin is ruthless. And you see later on that word lust in 1 Peter 4 verses 2 through 6. How can we not hate the thing that killed the one that we love? We should hate sin because it did that to Jesus, right? And so we start there. Think of sin's ruthlessness. Beloved, we, we, we have to think about sin the right way. That's our, that's our big issue. We, we think too lightly of sin. We, we, we have let sin off the hook. We've given sin a pass. We have sugar-coated sin. We've allowed sin to have excuses and we've redefined it to be a problem or an issue or an addiction. No, 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 no. A killer! A murderer of our dear Lord Jesus. See, we need to see sin that way. So we start with that kind of thinking if we're going to deal with sin rightly. If we're going to fight it. It's ruthless. Look at what it did to our loving, merciful, gracious Savior, Jesus. Point number two. Think of sin's relentlessness. Back to 1 Peter 4, 1. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. How do we know that sin is relentless? Because you will die as a Christian fighting it. We already showed you that he who has suffered in the flesh means he who has died. That, that's what it meant for Jesus. That's what it means for us. When will the battle against sin end? When you and I die. Sometimes, you, you know, you disciple a young man, and I've heard this so many times. I keep falling into temptation, and I struggle so much with lust. I, I, I just can't. I mean, and they'll ask you, say, all right, I need you to give me 
the secret to uh, handling lust. All right, you ready? I got this from 1 Corinthians. You might have gotten it this last week too in, in flock group. Two words. Flee immorality. Close the book. There it is. That's what God says about how to handle lust. Flee immorality. Amen. And usually when I say that to the person I'm discipling, they're looking at me kind of like, yeah, you haven't helped me yet. I'm still here and I'm not leaving till I get more. Just can't wait, they say to themselves, till I'm a more mature Christian and don't have to struggle with this. Huh. Well, I'm sorry to inform you that you will be battling lust until you die. That's what he says here. That's what verses 2 through 6 are. Lust is a big theme. And he says it ends when you die. Well, you will reach a, a greater level of maturity, a greater level of glory, Second Corinthians 3.18, but it won't end until you die. It's not like you get to the place where you go, all right, I'm done with that sin. How about I get started on the, the next one or the other one? I mean, if Paul told Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. I mean, we, we hear that, oh, man. I didn't know that Timothy had a lust problem. What? We all have lust problems. That's the point. Flee youthful lusts. If Paul told him that, probably means that it's an issue for strong Christians as well as weak ones. Sin is relentless. The evidence of how relentless sin can be is seen in our relationships with one another. And how that even shows up in our relationship with Christ. I mean, look at what sin has done to the Christian. Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Verse 19, I practice the very evil that I do that I do not want. And Paul says, look what sin has done to me. I mean, I hate it. First Timothy 1.15, I'm the chief of sinners, Paul said. When you look at Romans 8, the whole creation groaning, and that even includes us, and we just go groaning all around, right? Why do we groan? Because this whole world is broken because of sin. And then you look at our relationships with each other, always selfishness, always self-will, self-love, self-absorbed, self-promoting, self-protection, self-pity, you know, put that on your Facebook little account there. You know, you put your descriptor of who you are. All those things right there. Whole lot of self in there. Sin makes you much. Excuse me. Sin makes you make makes you want much want to make much of you and make less of others. No wonder Paul had to say in Philippians. 2, 1 through 4, consider others more important than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Stop thinking so much about yourself. You know why the whole creation groans? 
It groans because it wants two things. Death and resurrection. Why? So it can cease from sin. At the end of Paul's life, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why do we hate sin? It's ruthless. Look at what it did to Jesus Christ. It's relentless. Look at all these people with failures and struggles and so selfish and so immature. That's right. And what you have are imperfect sheep being being led by imperfect shepherds who will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, in conclusion, those are just two thoughts. We've got three more. That's how you forget evil. You get your thinking about sin right. You you think about what sin did to Jesus and what it does to all of us and all our relationships. And and you know what? You'll start to, to, to hate it. And that's going to lead to greater victory, see. And it really does come down to understanding those two things about sin. How ruthless it is. How relentless it is. Don't play around with it, right? We need to encourage each other that way. And these next three are really going to get you to that place where we get to the very end here. And I think we'll have a pretty good deal going where we could help each other to fight against sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, What a difficult path. But Lord, we see the joy in being in you is even greater and able to meet this difficulty. And so I pray, Lord, you'd help us in our battle um, because we want to just, we want all our actions and all that we do, Lord, to be a statement of our love for you. We pray, help us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.